0: the news and information about every player, coach, and team
1: in the National Hockey League. This is the Hockey Today podcast
0: from ESPN.
2: Hey everybody, oh here we go. No shortage of topics on this edition of Hockey Today, the podcast. Massive changes coming in Buffalo where Tim Murray and Dan Bilesman are shockingly out of jobs. We will hear from Ken Hitchcock, new head coach of the Dallas Stars. Glenn Healy, longtime NHLer and analyst, joins us and we continue to track the dynamic Washington Toronto series. All right, here we go. Hockey today, the podcast. Oh, this is the second one this week. I feel like I'm now in like full motion. Craig Cousins, you feel that? Do you feel like I'm? <laughs> I'm barely touching the ground here. We're on the second one this week. No shortage of storylines. Uh, how are you feel? Not at all. You- I'm feeling yeah, good. I, I just
1: gonna- I'm just recovered from the beating you gave me in the last one about my picks. Even though they're <laughs> starting to rally, so you know. Now that I'm feeling a little bit better on myself, I'm, I'm coming back on for you to to you know take a few more shots. I'm sure.
2: Oh, well, it's funny because I didn't know they they'd extended that calgary anaheim series to a best of nineteen, so <laughs> that's good. We'll get to that in a bit. Uh, but uh, um, uh, first off, let's uh, we will talk the the big news of the day, and I I, I don't think it's uh, hyperbole to say this is absolutely shocking and. Lots of meat to the story, but certainly uh, earlier in the day today, uh, Terry Pugula, the owner of the Buffalo Sabres, uh, announcing uh, almost out of the blue, I think that's fair to say, that he had dismissed not just head coach Dan Bilesma, whose future had been in some discussion and certainly in recent days, uh, but also GM Tim Murray as well, and he was well on his way to um, filling both those key positions. Uh, Am I? Did I miss something, or were you as taken aback <laughs> as I was, and maybe the whole hockey world by the move?
1: I, well, here's I, – I, I, you know, I was certainly suspicious about the the coach. Um, you know, there was a lot of smoke around Dan Balsma, and, you know, and you kind of heard some speculation, and I was chasing a little bit some, you know, that maybe the Sabres were already kind of pursuing a coach, and then I would check in with Tim Murray, and – you know, it, it wasn't necessarily the case, and so then you should start going. Boy well, you know, what's going on in Buffalo? And I, I was—I had a conversation while I was in Pittsburgh, covering that series with somebody. And uh, since this is a family um, podcast, I can't repeat the word that was used to describe the Buffalo Sabres organization by this person in hockey. Uh-oh. But it was—it uh, was a show that was not—you uh, know—that was the second word in that description. <laughs> the show, and and it wasn't pleasant. And. And so you kind of, I, I certainly had inclinations, but never enough to like, you know, write anything or report it, but just enough to go, boy, it doesn't seem to be going well in, in, in Buffalo. But then, then of course all the stuff hits about Jack Eichel and whether or not he's happy. And, you know, and I've been, I spoke to his agent and again, it was like, nope, none of this is true. And, but boy, there was just enough going on that I don't, uh, that I, I don't think I was that, that surprised. Uh, I, I guess I was ultimately that they pulled the plug on both Tim Murray and Dan Bosma. But at this point, it, it does seem like things are, have gone so sideways there that uh, you can't rule out anything.
2: Well, and I mean, there's so much to contemplate with this, and I'm with you. Like I, I think everyone. Uh, you know, notwithstanding the, the report that, uh, and you uh, made reference to it, but uh, the report that Jack Eichel wouldn't consider signing uh, his first extension with the team coming out of, out of his entry level deal uh, if Dan Bowles was the head coach, and the immediately, immediate, and very strong uh, rebuttal from both the agent and then Jack Eichel talking to the Buffalo News, and like it just seemed, you know, it just seemed a lot of a lot of noise about this particular topic. And, a lot of noise um, going on. Lot about a, team noise. That's not in the a lot playoffs of noise. A lot right of noise. A Yeah, and uh, but for me, and so okay, let's let's say you decide that you know the team did take a huge step backward this year. Lots of discussion about the relationship between the players, veterans, and young players, uh, and the coaching staff. All right, so let's say you make it, you decide you want to change your coaching staff, which is all right, but to pull the pin on Tim Murray, really just two years into, you know, sort of this rebuild, right? I mean, the, I, I just I thought that was shocking, and you know, when you factor in, you know, the ongoing drama. With the Buffalo Bills, the NFL team, also yeah. owned by the Pagula family, and it's right. like that's, an, that's a that's a that's uh, a uh, I will date myself I'm like, I'm as old as my parents, but sort of like a Peyton place of pro sports in North America. Uh, in terms a of what now? A, uh, what's that?
1: Is Like is that a Peyton Manning reference? <laughs>
2: no, no, it's anyway. It's too old. Even it's even older than uh, some of my other references, but. Basically, a lot of drama going on in Buffalo. Uh, so let's get to. I have two things I want to discuss with you before we get back to playoff yeah. hockey, which I think are fairly important. I feel. I must admit, I feel sort of sorry for Jack Eichel and all of this because certainly I think it's fair to say he is. There's a bit of prickliness to Jack Eichel, and I think it, you know. Yeah. I think that's fair, and and, but now people are like, well you know, he's the coach killer, he's, you know, is he the, right, is right. He the new GM? Like all kinds of snide comments that you, you see on social media. But where do you think this leaves Jack Eichel and, the, and the, what to happens then moving forward? Whoever comes in as the coach and whoever comes in as, as a GM to guide this team, because there's lots to like about it, right? This, this team should be yeah. better than it was this year. Does this change how you view Jack Eichel and, and maybe what kind of pressure is on him? Going into his third season,
1: I mean, I, I don't know. I, I, I like it, that's such a tough one because because you you heard some of the same things. You know, Jack Eichel and didn't get along with Dan Bylsma, and and then you know you hear people kind of floating this idea that maybe all that can't came out because um, you know it was an attempt for Tim Murray and Dan Bylsma to stick around. Uh, you know, so so it didn't look like Jack Eichel was running the show. Again, it goes back to how weird the whole situation is, and, I, and at the very least, it puts Jack Eichel in a horrible spot because because now, regardless of who gets hired as GM and coach, it's it's going to look like he has uh, you know all kinds of influence. There's going to be pressure on him to perform, and it's hard enough as a kid to 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 do this on top of all of that. And the other thing is, um, one of the names you, you're hearing connected to this is is David Quinn, Jack's old coach. And so now let's say David Quinn is the best person for this job. And and I think David Quinn would be a good hire. Then it looks like like even more like Jack Eichel is, is calling the shots because, okay, here's this guy that he liked playing for. And it's, it's it's almost like everything's going to be painted through this, this, um, you know, colored by Jack Eichel, whether or not it's, it's accurate or not. And I I, I liked, I, you know, I read his Q and a, um, with uh, the Buffalo News, and and he's he, you know it, he really expanded on a lot of the issues, and I thought he was really honest and and um, you know you, yeah he can be prickly at times, but also he clearly cares about winning uh, a, a lot, and and I think it probably hurts him to see Connor McDavid in the playoffs. I think the Toronto Maple Leaf success on some level maybe expedited this firing of Murray and Bylsma because they're so close and they're rivals and. And, I, you know, it's it's happened so fast for the Maple Leafs, and I think there was some patience lost there. But I almost think, like, Jack Eichel can't win, right? Like, at this point, yep. he's put in such a tough spot here.
2: Yep. Well, and that, yeah, I think it does. It'll be interesting to see. I know on Friday, I believe, uh, Terry Pagoula is supposed to meet with the media. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, how he spins this. And, and, and more importantly, what he does moving forward. So I'm curious what you think of the... The whole GM thing, because already there are a number of names floating out there, and, I'll, and I'll, you probably likely heard the same ones that I have, but I thought yeah. they were interesting. And, and one was Dean Lombardi, recently um, relieved of his duties as the GM of the Los Angeles Kings after building a Stanley Cup winner there, winning cups in 2012 and 2014, and going to a West Final in between uh, before yeah. things fell apart there. And the other name I heard, which I thought was interesting today, is the assistant GM out of the Chicago Blackhawks, Norm McIver, a terrific really smart very influential guy Mm -hmm. Uh, we talk a lot about Stan Bowman and the work he's done in keeping the Blackhawks as a perpetual cup contender notwithstanding their issues with Nashville in the first round but um, that organization is rock solid Norm Norm MacIver is a big part of that too and I wonder what are you you hearing and do you have a you know who, who makes a who's a good fit there do you think?
1: Yeah, well, when I like my first order of business was really trying to get a sense of of who who is calling the shots there now, right? Like, is this is this just gonna, is is Terry is there like a right hand man that that's that's going to be running the show, or is this Terry Pagula? Or so I'm I'm curious. I, I don't think I've gotten to the bottom of that. I don't know if we know. Um, and and but like I, I you know those are two pretty good names you've thrown out. You know another name I've heard. And this is coming from the Buffalo media, so this isn't anything I'm being told or we're being told. But like Rick Dudley is always a name that's always ta- attached to Buffalo and has done a good job with the Montreal Canadiens. Um, I know um, Jason Botterill, uh, the associate GM in Pittsburgh. If I remember correctly, he interviewed for the Tim Murray job in Buffalo. He's got you know he, he's got some connections to the Sabers. I think he's certainly ready I and mean, he's done a great job um, working with Jim Rutherford and. Penguins winning another cup. Um, a wild card in all of this, and Pierre mentioned this one on Twitter, is Brad living in Calgary doesn't have a contract after this year somehow. Um, at the very least, it's giving him a little bit of leverage, right? If you're Brad, you can go into the office and say, um, you know, this, there's another job open. So there's certainly candidates. Julian Brisbois in Tampa Bay, capable. Paul Fenton is a guy, of course, I think it could run a franchise if he's not the guy in waiting in Nashville. No shortage of, of candidates. Um, and you know I'm such a good reporter. I talked to Dean Lombardi yesterday, and I didn't even ask him if uh, about this job. So I guess I must have been surprised <laughs> by it because, yeah, you know, I think I got sidetracked by a politics discussion that lasted the first half hour of our call, and it threw me off my scent. But you know, so I think Dean certainly is 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 capable. But I think it's too early in the process for us to get a real beat on it.
2: Yeah, it'd be interesting. And you know what? Here's the great thing because you provided the natural segue into the playoffs. Uh, but mentioning Brad Trilliving of the Calgary Flames, who are already looking ahead to next season after being uh, swept out of the playoffs yeah. by the Anaheim Ducks. And I, I would say, you know, I, uh, you and I have talked about this earlier in the week, but uh, I think we probably sort of glossed over uh, the Anaheim Ducks and where they're at. And of course, earlier uh, this week, uh, Ryan Kessler uh, nominated or um, among those finalists announced for the Frank J. Selke Trophy Award, No surprise there. I think he has to be the odds-on favorite. At least that would be my guess moving into it. And yeah. he, uh, even though I insist on referring to John Gibson by an old neighbor's name, uh, John Gibson, <laughs> uh, after a little bit of a rocky outing, came back in and, and closed the door. The same could not be said, however, for Brian Elliott and, uh, yeah. and the Calgary Flames. Just a pretty miserable playoff. And really, you know, when you're down 3 oh, nothing, you know, History tells you it's over, but you know, I think Brian Elliott lasted 5:08 or something like that, lit in a horrific, bad angle goal and really put the, the Flames behind the eight ball. Uh, what do you, you, you like the Flames, obviously, and I'm not I'm, I'm not throwing you under the bus on this, but is it simply a matter of, hey, it's experience for a young team, lots to love about that team, and it's I think it's fair to say they haven't got their goaltending together right I mean they, yeah. they can't yeah you know, they, that's a team that needs to address that and if they do or you, do you like what may happen then moving forward
1: um well we one of my favorite things is we we do the kind of a, a quick glance at the offseason game plan the moment these teams are eliminated so you know the Calgary Flames is you know three things to, to watch in their offseason and number one for me was was their goaltending and I think it said it all. Here, you know, Brian Elliott was was the solution. I liked that trade by for Brad, Brad Living and bringing in Brian Elliott short term, you know, solution where you weren't committing beyond this this year. Had, had a great playoff with the Blues last year. You have young goalies coming, so you weren't committing beyond you know an, an unreasonable term. But the fact that Glenn Gullicon pulled him. In a game they had to win. After one goal, to me was like, I'm like, oh okay. I think we've seen the end of Brian Elliott in Calgary. Like, if you can't trust him in that scenario, I don't even know why you started him then. Like, you, you might as well have gone to Chad Johnson if the, if the leash was that short. So uh, yeah, aside from extending the GM, I think finding a goalie is 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 the answer. The problem is not a problem, but they've got some good ones coming coming. And and um, Tyler Parsons, the kid, I think he's in London the American kid who won gold at the World Junior, um, he's he's supposed to be really good. And, and so I don't think, and, and I mean, I'd be curious to hear your opinion, but I don't think you want to go out and sign Ben Bishop to a a seven-year deal or something when you have a couple really good young options. And, and even like a Scott Darling, he's not going to sign a, a short-term deal. So that's the challenge, I think, for them in addressing the goal, goaltending is you want to bring in somebody who you think can win in the short term who won't, cost you a lot of long-term, uh, you know, commitment, um, and, and you don't want to block the path for the young guys. That's why I, I suggested marc Andre Fleury. I think he would be perfect because he's only got a couple years left on his deal. He has playoff experience, and then you can bridge the gap. And he's playing well right yeah. now.
2: Well, and that's—I mean, you—I think you've hit the nail on the head. There aren't a lot of people, a lot of goaltenders, who touch all of those uh, buttons in, in yeah. you know wanting to wanting to do that, wanting to pave the way or, you know, create a path for goaltenders that could be your franchise goaltender, you know, sort of for five or ten years or whatever it is if they turn out the way you think. But this is a good enough team that they should be back in the playoffs next year if you can get this right. So um, so I'm going I'm to ask you this question because it allows me then to open up our uh, discussion with uh, um, one of our favorite guys in hockey and a guy that you actually also spoke to this week. Uh, Ken Hitchcock, the new head coach of yeah. the Dallas Stars, the new old head coach of the Dallas Stars. So we're going to hear from Ken in a minute. But let me ask you this question: Which team is which team, if they get the right goaltending solution, is more dangerous next year? The Dallas Stars under Ken Hitchcock, or the mm. Calgary Flames, just bounced by the Anaheim Ducks in the first round. Which team, you know, if they That's get the, great if, if the right goaltending fix, which team gets which team is further ahead?
1: I. W- well, okay, so let's – it's interesting because I think on some level that they both could end up targeting a guy like Scott Darling. So, like, let's say Scott Darling's Cam Talbot or Martin Jones, and he's good. And, and so if you put, plug him in on both of those teams, who, you know, who's better? I I think I would still – I would say the Calgary Flames. I think they're I, – I just – I like their defense better. Like, who, as good as John Klingberg is, they don't have a, you know, Mark Giordano-Dougie Hamilton combination like the Calgary Flames can run out at ya. Um, I you know I like I like the young forwards and, and you know the mix of high end speed and skill of Johnny Goudreau, the sandpaper of Matthew Kachuk who was just who awesome to watch and I love how he's that young and he's bothering people as much as he is. Um, I I would pick Calgary and not by a lot. Like I think if Dallas gets things fixed and and uh, Hitch Hitch you know can get Tyler Sagan to pay a little bit more attention both sides of the ice, which it sounded like that was going to be a conversation he was going to have this week. Um, I, I think that they, you know they're not far off, but I I like I like the pieces Calgary has a little bit better. What about you? Before you put before you give us Ken Hitchcock, you got to answer the question.
2: Well, I'm not going to say this just because we are, are going to hear from Ken Hitchcock, <clears throat> although it will sound like that. But I think the stars are there, and I like um, you know I asked Ken Hitchcock this about. You know, coming back after. You know, it looked like he might, you know, do something different. Had things worked out differently in St. Louis, so uh, I think that he is an excellent fit there. And I do think that Jim Neal will get the goaltending right. And I think the stars are going to be right back at the top of the Central Division next year. So you know, that's my answer. But uh, I'll let you. I'll, let, I'll I'll let you judge that. And in the meantime, we will, in fact, hear from one of the great hockey talkers of all time and the new head coach of the Dallas Stars, Ken Hitchcock. All right, here we go. Terrific guest for us today on Hockey Today, the podcast. And in fact, I will say this, a, a friend of the podcast, Ken Hitchcock, new head coach of the Dallas Stars. Ken, welcome back. It's it's always great to hear your voice.
3: Thanks a lot, Scott. Thanks for having me on, bud.
2: Well, and I, the first question I had for you is when you uh, accepted the job in Dallas, of course a job that you held in the past and in fact were uh, the head coach during the one and only run to a Stanley Cup championship for the Dallas Stars in 1999. Did you have, do you have like a box in the garage and it's like Dallas and then you open it up and you just – scratch out Mike Medano and put in Tyler Sagan and you scratch out Jamie or scratch out Brett Hall and put in Jamie Benn. I mean, did you have stuff left over from your first trip through Dallas?
3: Um, you know, you, you see, you see some, some really good pieces. Like you see some pieces that get you really excited and, and for good reason, because there's, there's good players, but then, you know, the team that we had in Dallas was, they were, they were already well on their way, Scott. You know, they were, they were ready to win already. They were well on their way. And, you know, adding guys like Brett and Eddie Balfour, you know, put us over the top because we needed those guys to compete against the Colorados in Detroit. There were so many loaded teams at that time it was really hard to get any inroads if you wanted to be a good team
2: sure now i talked to a, a couple of scouts and personnel people and um, just after you uh, took the job to, to return to dallas and they said they described the dallas stars as a team that needs more tinkering that they they described it as not a team that needs a rebuild, but a team that needs some tinkering in it, which makes sense. I mean, they won the Central Division a year ago and then obviously had to step back in this uh, previous season. This, the season just ended. Do, do you buy that? I mean, when you look at the lineup, what, what, what kind of challenges are, are, are there for you to get that team back in, into a place where I think we all considered them uh, a legitimate chance to go deep in, in the Western Conference a, a year ago?
3: Well, I I think the best way it was described to me was that um, two years ago, uh, the team had enough talent and skill to get to the floor necessary to be competitive in the West. And then a year ago, it bounced up to the ceiling. You know, 109 points is – that's that's a heck of a season. And then this this year it bounced below the floor. So somewhere in there, Scott – is is the team, and my job is to try to get it as close to the ceiling as I can. So um, it's not a it's not a rebuild. It's more, quite frankly, it's more of a reload. And and I think that there's like I said, there's a lot of players that you can you can reload with that are here already. But we do need we do need to take a hard look at ourselves too because. When you take that drop, you can't hide your head in the sand and just, just blame it on injuries or blame it on bad luck. It's a lot deeper than that. And I think we're in a position where we, we have to take a hard look at every aspect of, of the way we played, uh, the commitment we made, um, everything. We, we got to take a really hard look at things. And, and I, I think, management coaches are doing that now and you know there's a lot of pieces like i said we like but there's there's some changes that i think all of us recognize that we have to make
2: yeah because you know I, i saw the you know the pictures and you go into dallas and you know jamie ben is there and tyler sagan and jason spezza how soon do you you know sort of sit down and really start to to pick the brains of your leadership core about you know, what they felt went wrong and how they feel that they can improve. I mean, is it, is, you know, we're in the middle of the first round of this year's playoff, so we've got some time. Do you do it right away or do you like to let it sort of percolate for a little bit before you get down to sort of the nitty gritty, maybe be closer to training camp or what's the plan on that front?
3: Um, I didn't want them to forget. So we've met with all of them now, all of the leaders. We sat down, uh, I spent probably anywhere between an hour and an hour and a half with each guy, and we went over detail. And Jim Jim and his, his staff had already done some of that stuff, but um, I wanted to dig deep in order to move down, or move on, I mean. What I mean by that is that once we figured out what each guy's responsibility was that went wrong, then I wanted guys moving ahead and getting on with getting ready for next year. Cause it is going to be a long summer when you're not playing in the playoffs, This, this is the first round and only one team's being eliminated, man, there's a ton of hockey left. And, um, it's going to be, uh, you know, it's going to be a long summer for guys. So, but I wanted them getting, stop beating it up and let's get moving on. Let's get ready for next year. So I met with, uh, with eight guys, uh, when I was in Dallas, and we sat down and went over every aspect of what went went right, what went wrong, and the differences between the two years, because every guy I met with, except for one, Scott, had played for the team on both occasions, so right. they they knew they knew what it felt like when it was going right, and they knew what it looked like and felt like when it was going wrong. Right. So we were we were well in tune there. Yeah.
2: I mean, it's obvious that, you know, the plan that was in place at the start of the season for you and what transpired in St. Louis did not it did not end the way that anyone expected it would. And I wonder at the end, when you were thinking uh, after things ended in St. Louis, did you imagine right away getting back behind the bench? Or were was there a part of time or maybe a, a part of you that was like, well, eh, maybe I'll do something else. And, you know, I don't know what it would be exactly. But was there that? was there a a motivation right away to say, I want to find another place that suits me because I'm not done yet. I I, want to write my own chapter. How did that go? Um,
3: Well, I got to tell you, it went for six weeks where I had no interest in coaching and I was, um, planning other things to move on. And, um, after about six weeks, uh, I started to get calls from coaches uh, from every walk of life, Europe, American League, junior, NHL, and they weren't calling for sympathy. They were calling for help, and I really got into that. I really enjoyed that part. I was helping guys, and I was looking at video, and I was sneaking into hockey rinks. None of you guys found me. Uh, there was only one time I got... I got. Uh, I, somebody knew who I was, and uh, and I, that's pretty good because I went into four NHL rinks, I went into three AHL rinks, uh, two junior rinks, and nobody nobody knew who I was, and I, I was, that worked out pretty good. And I went in to watch guys who I who helped me get to where I am. I went and watched their teams play, and we talked and everything like that. But after a while, it started helping me. Um, as much as I was helping them, they were helping me more. And that's when things really started to change for me. And I started really missing it. And I started thinking, you know, like, there's a different way to put all the work in that you have to in the off season, if you want to stay on top of your game. And um, I started seeing what I could do that was different. And then I, I got, I got really excited. I got really excited because I was listening to different coaches other ideas, uh, trading, trading information, and I really started to get excited about coaching and then uh, probably about uh, six weeks into it, uh, that's when Jim called. and when Jim called, I just said, "Look, I'm in," and uh, I went and I went and had an interview, and it turned really quickly. you know within three or four days we're, we're marching and looking at getting a job.
2: Very nice. Now, were you incognito? Like, you must have... You weren't, like, wearing a weird hat or anything? Like, because I like to think if I'd been in the same rink with you, I might have... Our paths might have crossed, so I, I like to think that you weren't somewhere that I was, so... Because, you know, it's always... Uh, really I
3: don't know. I, you know, like, I was in some pretty common rinks, but, yeah, I was wearing a hat, yes. I wasn't wearing dark glasses and a beard or something, but I, 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 learned, I learned from Bob Ganey how to go in and not be noticed, and what to do and stuff like that, what to avoid. So I, I thought I did a really good job with doing that. And, um, you know, I, I wanted to, I just didn't want to, it gets really boring watching hockey, just on video and on TV. So I wanted to do some, some of it live. So I drove and went and looked at uh, games and, and then talked to the coach the next day. I stayed away from everything that day of the game. I I arrived like a normal fan. I found this, I got a ticket, and
2: uh, I watched hockey. Very cool. Well, I know that. I mean, it must be, it must be interesting to watch. The, you know, this first round of this playoff year unfold. And I wonder if there are things that you've been particularly interested in or surprised by. I mean, obviously, you know, Mike Babcock very well, and I think a lot of us have. Uh, you know, I was in Washington for games one and two, and uh, you know, there's lots to to be fascinated with by that series. Um, but are there things that have really sort of piqued your interest in thought process in, in this first round of the playoffs?
3: I would say the thing that's really been interesting for me is uh,
2: there are playoff series
3: that look like it's going to be last man standing. And then there's playoff series that are very cautious, and uh, structured and um, very conservative. So there seems to be a lot of difference in each series. You know, when you watch Pittsburgh and Columbus play, it's knockout punch time. And it's everybody just throwing haymakers. Every shift feels like a haymaker. And, And it's the same as Washington... And, and uh, Toronto and Washington played so well yesterday and they still gave up four goals. And, and, you know, each team is so, uh, so gifted offensively that nothing's safe. And those are the wild games that you think in the first round, you know, like, like there's always these comments, Scott, that, The first round looked like the Stanley Cup final, and there's a couple of those, but there's a there's a pretty big difference in some of the series. You know, some of these series are are really conservative, and and uh, teams are playing for the lead and playing for one goal, and you know, some of the games with what's at stake, quite frankly, are very very cautious.
2: No, I think that it, it's true. There is, it's always, I don't know whether smorgasbord is kind of the right way to describe it, but I think you're absolutely right. And every night and, you know, on some nights you might have three or four games that offer you three or four completely different views of the game and the way it's played at, uh, at playoff time, which is, I don't know, is that, is that unusual? Because I think there is a sense that maybe historically there's been more uniformity, that you wouldn't see this sort of wide range of stylistic, Approach to the playoffs? Do you think that's fair?
3: I, I gotta tell you, like the last two or three years until this year, i I felt the first round has be knockout punch hockey. Yeah. I, I've really felt like that's that's what the first round felt like. Like every team was just swinging for the fences, and it's it's different this year. It's it it does feel a lot different this year. I mean, there's some there's some series, quite frankly, that are much must-watch television, must-watch. And and then there's some that you can watch the game, they're very well played, but you can come back 35, 40 minutes later and it's the same pace, the same style, and in most cases the same score. And, um, you know, so it it, it is being, uh, to me, really, uh, really different. And, and, like I said, there's some that you just can't turn the TV off, and some that you can get back to and see a similar pattern throughout the whole game. Yeah.
2: All right, I have one question for you before I let you go. One of the things that I found uh, interesting in a bunch of the stuff I've done this year is, uh, and I probably knew this in the past, but you know, when players get traded, they always end up, you know, Ryan Johansson, uh, you know, ended up, his apartment in Columbus is now occupied by Seth Jones and, uh, Ryan Johansson, I'm pretty sure is in Shea Weber's place in Nashville and so on and so on. So is this the same for coaches? Like when you are, you're headed back to Dallas, or you already live there, you know, the area well, but like, are you, and you know, Lindy Ruff extremely well, right? I and mean, you guys have known each other for a hundred years. Are you like in Lindy's place or what happens for coaches when you go back into a city?
3: We are really, uh, Uh, different ducks, and everything for us is convenient. So the first thing we look for most cases is where are the stops to convenience? In other words, where's the grocery stores? Where's the dry cleaners? Where's the Starbucks? Uh, Where's the pharmacy? How close to the practice rink is it? We We are a different breed. You know, we're, we, we look, for uh, proximity and uh, and kind of that easy chair living, and I just got back today from Dallas, and I found it. And so, but it's funny because as much as I toured the place that I'm going to live in, I toured the surroundings on how easy it is to to live my life because I know that it's going to be you know demanding and there's going to be long hours. You know, in uh, in coaching in Texas, coaching in Dallas is a lot different from a time constraint than coaching in St. Louis. The the travels longer, the commutes are longer, so you you have to really plan a lot of things in Dallas that you don't have to plan in St. Louis because St. Louis is great because it seems like you're halfway to everything, and it's very very convenient. To To be an athlete or a coach in St Louis in in Dallas, you have to make sure that things are planned out much more meticulously
2: i 'm with you and, and I will admit a, a certain foible of my own and invariably it takes me forty five minutes to get out of the airport in Dallas. I can never. I can't get out of the airport. Get the rental car. Can't get out. So I understand what you're talking about uh, when, in terms of traveling convenience. And I, I'll sound a little bit like Eddie Haskell as we say this, but it's uh, Ken Hitchcock, it's always been better to have you in the game than out of it. So welcome back. And I hope things go very well for you in Dallas. And I'm going to try and sneak into one of your rinks in the next few months just to see if you catch me up in the corner. So just uh, fair warning. I'm going ha- to
3: have a picture posted at all the entrances when you come in scott so be ready
2: <laughs> all right anyway thanks for dropping by today ken really appreciate it all right thanks all right take care all right we're, we're just about at the end of the first segment of hockey today the podcast but craig yeah. you also talked to ken hitchcock do, 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 do you yeah. it's just it's nice to have him back in the game he he, he wasn't gone long <laughs> but he's back uh what was your vibe when you talked to him and uh no, is, is that the. And I think with Chicago struggling against Nashville in the first round, I think maybe we are seeing a much more open, certainly central division, and a, <clears throat> a much more open Western Conference. We, yeah. do, do you like Ken to have sort of instant magic in his return? Well, I guys? don't.
1: I mean, I don't even think it needs. Like it's not like they're, you know, the Buffalo Sabres or something. Like that team's not not all that far off. If you plug in a goalie, they're going to be good to find people call it Ken Hitchcock. Um, Scotty and I both have Atlanta numbers, and there's not many people left in hockey that have an Atlanta cell phone. Uh, mm-hmm. so I, when I called Ken this week, he answers, he says, Scotty. I'm like, nope. <laughs> <laughs> like, this is Craig. He's like, oh, the other Atlanta number. And, the, and and I think there may be a third. I think Don Waddell, who is now the president of the Carolina Hurricanes, still has his Atlanta cell. So every once in a while, I'll call somebody and they'll be like, Oh, I thought it was Don Waddell. I'm like, sorry to disappoint. It's, uh, an annoying reporter bothering you. Um, but I, I, you know, I, I'm with you. It's, it's, I think it's a good fit. In talking to Ken, a lot of our conversations, you know, I, I, I basically wanted to hear from him when I talked to him where the growth was going to come from. Um, cause they're going to lose a lot of the veteran players off that roster. And I just want you know where was the improvement going to come from and and the word he kept saying a lot was mature and and he thought they needed to, to compete in the central division. they needed to play a more mature brand of hockey than they'd played before and he said essentially to to win in the central, you can't be the first team to make a mistake in those games against the blues and the wild and the Blackhawks and the predators and you, you know he and too often the Dallas stars did. So he he wanted to see them play with a little bit more uh, maturity and patience, and and just you know not hand over leads as consistently as they did in the past.
2: Yeah, but see that's why you're a better reporter than I am because I was more interested if he was going to move into Lindy Ruff's house. But anyway, so that's,
1: uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's is he? No, did, did he
2: but. He he didn't really answer it. He just, as you, you know, he was talking about being near uh, creature comfort. So, uh, anyway, I think it's going to be great. And, and uh, I think it's uh, it's nice. Um, I think it's going to be a nice fit. Eh? You know what? You can't always go home. But uh, I think in this case you can. So, all right, my friend. It's about time. We're going to hear from Pierre Lebrun and, uh, in the second segment and Glenn Healy. We're going to talk chaos and frenzy in Toronto and a whole bunch of other stuff. But always great. To chat with you, and I thought I was—I I, I tried to be a little bit more kind to you too. I don't, didn't, didn't I, you know? I, I didn't want you feeling a bit tender, as I, I felt you might have been after the earlier podcast. But next week, when we get back, you know, this is—and feel free, you know. By then, you'll probably have something that you can throw at me. So we'll—we'll uh, we'll see how the Minnesota. Well, by then, Wilder by then, then
1: your, uh, your Minnesota Wild will be eliminated, <laughs> and I can uh, and I can. I've been saving that Blues pick that Pierre and I both <laughs> agreed on to. Well, I, but I'm going to wait. Unlike you, I, I don't, I don't, I don't start lording it over you. But while the series is is in the middle of uh, being played, I'm
2: I'm, I'm a patient <laughs> uh,
1: aggressor here.
2: All right. Well, we'll see how it all turns out. And next week, you and I'll get back to it. But uh, do not go all away. Right. Well, you can go, but no one okay. else <laughs> should go away <laughs> because we're going to be back in exactly one minute with the second segment of Hockey Today, the podcast. <laughs> All right, here we go. Exactly one minute later. And, you know, this is the great thing about technology, right? One minute ago, it was Craig Custance and I, and I was choking, so I was—I got better over that. And now, Pierre Lebrun, you are here. <laughs> later on, we're going to hear from Glenn Healy, a good pal of ours, and certainly you know, someone who knows the Toronto Le- Maple Leafs franchise and the market very, very well. But, Pierre, let's let's start with a series that continues to be maybe not just because i covered game one and two and because I used to cover the Leafs and but this series is is off the charts. isn't it? am am I overstating it am i- am I hyperbolic about it or what's what's it been like covering the last two games in toronto uh amid the, that sea of leaf frenzy what's it been like in in the center of the hockey universe
4: no it's it's a complete gong show it's uh <laughs> Just look at Maple Leaf Square outside the Organa Center to find out, uh, you know, what this market is like. And, and, and as you know, Scotty, I mean, they're really, until the Cubs won the World Series, this is hockey's lovable losers. I mean, this is the franchise that has so many fans, so much history, so much money. And yet, uh, well, you know, no championship since 1967, which is the longest drought in the NHL. Um, so... I think what's happening now it, it, it isn't only the fact that well they're finally back in the playoffs, which in itself is something but that would usually be enough to to get everyone excited in this city. But it goes beyond that because I think what I'm sensing sensing and it, obviously it's anecdotal, but I think what I'm sensing, especially from the younger fans, is that this is the start of something here that that between Austin Matthews, Mitch Marner, and and and, and William Nylander and everyone else on this team, this very good young team that the sky's the limit moving forward. That doesn't mean that they're taking a knee against Washington here. Of course not. They're in this. But I think there's a recognition that holy jumping, is this chapter just opening or what? And uh, I think that's why it's absolutely electric in these parts right now.
2: (laughs) So about halfway through the uh, game four uh which of course was ultimately won by the washington capitals five four about halfway through it i was thinking okay one of the things i'm looking forward to asking pierre about um you know especially with edmonton coming off the heels of a seven nothing drubbing in san jose that even that series in the western conference and you know some parallels obviously austin matthews franchise center and connor mcdavid you know which team might be you know best equipped to to get over being whipped in the middle of the series right. like that. And of course it didn't actually happen. So I'm going to I'm going to massage my question uh, because I think it is interesting. the sort of the parallels uh, between the Edmonton Oilers and the, and the Toronto Maple Leafs. I think it's fair to say, it, you know, the Oilers are probably further along the evolutionary scale, but although it's mm-hmm. interesting because both the series um, are, are, you know, as you and I are chatting today, both those series are tied to, to um, some back and forth, uh, and of course, the Oilers really getting crushed in, in Game Four. So let's let me just ask it uh, this way: Do, uh, When you look at getting beaten that badly, and I thought Connor McDavid really was very calm as the captain of the Oilers, saying, "As far as I know, that still only counts as one victory in the series, right?" Doesn't All matter right. what the score is. Do you think they is that true, or is that the kind of? You know, is this, is that kind of loss something that may be helpful ultimately to the Oilers, or is it one of those? Oh my gosh, we are in over our heads, and that's you know the Sharks will will sort of control uh, that series moving forward. I wonder how you see that playing out. I
4: I think it's helpful to both the Oilers and the Leafs, and even though I totally agree with you, I mean Edmonton is a step ahead of where the Leafs are in their in their art. Uh The Leafs are just starting this year. but I think it's a helpful lesson for both teams in that. You know, both teams, after they were up 2-1, even though Edmonton's not nearly as big an upset, a lot of people picked the Oilers to beat the Sharks. But nevertheless, just because they're young and they're back in the playoffs after all this time, a lot of positive press, a lot of uh, feel-good little stories about both the Oilers and and the Leafs heading into each team's respective Game 4. And, of course, the other similarity was that a veteran team was awaiting them a veteran team that had been launched into the corner and now was waiting to come out of it swinging. And I think the lesson and I talked about this with a couple of leaf players uh, today is that teams that become real contenders over the course of time have players that teach themselves to manufacture that kind of desperation level. That even though it's the other teams that's on other team, that's on the ropes, you have to train yourself as a pro to say, you know what? We have to be just as desperate. And I know it sounds dumb, but but it, it, it's you've seen it already in the first round. You know the Rangers have to win Game Four against Montreal. You, you noticed a difference in desperation on some nights, and I think for the Leafs, you know the Leafs were warned of this by Mike Babcock. That's the best part of this. Mike Babcock, unsolicited at his morning briefing, brought up San Jose, Edmonton, as a teaching moment for his team that night. No question, he would have talked about it in the team meeting, and still, even though you're you're hit over hit over the head with it it didn't sink in the leafs were not ready at all for the kind of desperation that the capitals threw at them in game 4
2: yeah no it's, i think that it, it, i think it's fascinating and to to me the interesting part is that when it was was a it 4-1 and yeah it just sort of i thought but the Leafs never, they didn't, they didn't allow my question line to come to fruition because they never give up. And I, I'm, I'm I want to ask you about Austin Matthews, who, you know, I think it's fair to say the first two games in Washington, even though the Leafs got mm-hmm. the split, um, you, know, you know, and the, the Caps got the matchup. Barry Trotz had the, the matchup that he liked defensively. And you know, it took a while for Austin Matthews to get going. I think he's been much, much better the last two games. You know, he scored a big goal that really kept the Leafs very much in game four. That's why it wasn't the runaway that you know was happening over in Edmonton. Uh, so uh, I'm going to ask you about Connor McDavid first. I wonder if you think, like, is this, are we going to see maybe some pressure being put on Connor McDavid, who has answered every question all through this season, first year as captain? Um, but now this is, you know, the, the Oilers... Have, you know, they have a chance to win the series. Why not? Mm-hmm. They're the home team and all those things. Is there going to be some now some pointed questions on Connor McDavid, just as there are pointed questions being asked in Montreal about Pat, uh, Captain Max Pacioretty? Why aren't you scoring? Why aren't you getting things done? Do you think Connor McDavid's about to get his first taste of, hey, w- you know, where have you been? Or are you going to deliver? Or is there still a sense of, you know what, he's still a kid. This team's still, you know, does he get – is the honeymoon still extending for Connor McDavid? Maybe that's the best way to ask that question.
4: Well, I think it's hard to answer that question until you see how the next few games play out.
2: (laughs) Right, yeah. I I understand that, yeah.
4: uh, I mean, uh, you know, in the here and now, you know, you'd want to see a bit more from him. But he's also kind of fallen victim to, you know, some teammates struggling. I mean, Leon Dreisaitl has been MIA. Now, maybe he's not 100% health-wise. I don't know. But – You know, so that, I mean, that was such a a formidable partnership, those two guys down the stretch. So, but let's see how this plays out. I don't like judging these type of thoroughbreds in the middle of a series. I like to wait until the end of the series. And the reason for that is that the great ones find a way in the end. And I would not be surprised if that indeed is the case with Connor McDavid.
2: Yeah, no. And I think that's, and it's, we're seeing that, I think, from Austin Matthews, too. So I want to ask you, so I don't want to ask you to, to judge. Austin Matthews and how he may or may not influence how the rest of the series plays out. It's, you know, we we know we're going to see six games. You're going to see another game Sunday at uh, the Air Canada Center. We that's all we know right now. But I wonder if you are if there are things about Austin Matthews that you've seen in the couple of games you've seen uh both wildly exciting in that supercharged element in Toronto that maybe you know that you didn't you weren't expecting or things that have you know maybe just your impressions of Austin Matthews after watching him up close in in that kind of environment.
4: Well what I like is is you see again as he's done all year is how quickly he learns and adapts and adjusts. You know he was saying a couple of weeks ago we were talking to him and we were asking about how you know how how you get out of slums, how you keep change, you know, how how you keep dealing with the way that you're getting attention now and he said well the league adjusts to you and you have to adjust to it. And you know it Maybe it sounds like a clip, but i I think in fact that's what he's saying is that he he's trying to find ways uh every game to to change something in his game and and to and to show something different and I think you've seen that in this series that he's been more impactful in game three and four than he was in the opening two games because he kind of got a sense of how playoff hockey finally is i mean you know how do you know until you play it and what I saw in Game three and game four a couple of times was um Himself using his physical strength in terms of his great leg, thre- uh, leg strength, to find open space, you know, to find an area where he can get that puck and do something with it, as opposed to you know waiting for that space to come to him, uh, because things are so tight in the playoffs. And and actually a little more physical than I've seen him too. Make sure that he gives it back. Um, so so that's sort of the next step in his game, and 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 he's been really impressive the last couple couple of games.
2: That's good. All right. Uh, as I promised, we're going to hear from uh, Glenn Healy. Uh, always a treat to catch up with uh, the former Leaf Netminder and hear his thoughts, not just on this series and, and on the marketplace, but on a number of different issues that I've been wanting to ask him about. Uh, so let's give a listen to my conversation with Glenn Healy. All right, here we go. Hockey Today, the podcast. Lucky to be joined by longtime NHL netminder, longtime national broadcast analyst, and one of the best bagpipers in the world, Glenn Healy. Actually, I'm not sure about the last part. Are you still piping? Is that still a thing for you?
0: Well, that introduction, we can't do any better than that. So, thanks for the interview, Scott, and I'll be signing <laughs> off. That was pretty good. <laughs> uh, the bagpiping is bigger and bolder than ever. Uh, we... Uh, have, you know, probably about 75 different events that we do in any given year. And they range from piping Paul McCartney to Vimy Ridge to all kinds of great things that I never would have got to do if I was a player, but get to do it as a bagpiper. And the great thing and the difference between hockey and piping is. Drinking goes better with piping, and it doesn't go well with hockey. So there's some benefits to it,
2: yes. (laughs) Well, I'd love to talk bad piping all day, but I think uh, for most of the hockey world, I think it's fair to say that uh, anyone who has a passing interest in the game has been riveted by the Washington Toronto series and as a long-time member of the Leafs and and, and part of a Leafs team that I I, I don't think probably gets the recognition that it should for its uh, you know sort of annual trips to the playoffs when pat Quinn was the the head coach there that you know it feels brand new it just feels brand new in toronto and now i'm not even there it just looks to me from afar like it is and having covered games one and two in washington i wonder what you like what's your sense what's the vibe and and what do you think of this young lease team and what's going on this spring
0: well, the, you know, you're right with the vibe, and the team in the past 13 years, they've made the playoffs one time in an 82-game season, which is hard to believe. They've made it twice in the past 13 years, and when you look at that Boston series uh, the, the, at the turn of 2010, you, uh, you were looking at Game 7 against Boston, where um, Hockey Night in Canada had somewhere near 13 million people watching Game 7 broadcast. Now, there's only 25 million people in Canada. Now there's 30. So more than half the country was watching that game. So that's what the brand means to this country. Now, the brand to this city, it's extraordinary. And, you know, we, were, we joked about it the other day. It's, we're not even out of the first round. I don't know what they're going to do for rounds two, three, and if they ever get to round four. Uh, but there's a buzz, and the team is exciting. The youngsters are exciting. And, you know, this is a fan base that has been through a lot. They've been through a lot of misery, a lot of pain, a lot of disappointment. And finally, they're getting some reward for their loyalty because no matter – you've been there, Scotty. Monday night, Air Canada Center, doesn't matter who they're playing, it's full. Saturday night, it's more than full. So this fan base has followed this team through a lot of pain and misery, and now they're getting some reward.
2: Like, even if – is it – and I think a lot of people, and I was one, I was part of this group, I really thought Washington uh, would be, I thought they would be too much for the Leafs. And I thought the Leafs were just going to be, and I know we like to do parallels all the time, and I thought they were going to be very similar to the Penguins team with Sidney Crosby when they first went to the playoffs in 07. Played a really good Ottawa te- team and just... You know, like they were there, but but sort of barely there. Uh, This Leafs team is more than barely there, and I wonder: is it going to if they if they lose this series to the Washington Capitals, will there be any luster off this, or is this this all gravy now? Or how do you you know? Because sometimes you can get too wrapped up with ah, you know what? Even if you lose, it's okay, and maybe it is. Like I don't know. What do you like? If they don't get beyond the Caps, which you know probably but. I I still think the Caps win this series, but if they don't, is it still okay for this Leaf team? And how important, maybe, has this playoff round been to what may happen in the future?
0: Well, there's a couple things. First off, you're you're right. This is like being on March break with Daddy's credit card. This Leaf team, (laughs) they've they've overextended what most people would have thought because they're playing Washington. But there's two things that stick out in my mind. Last year when their team was 30th in the NHL, when Leo Komarov was their best player, and he was their guy going to the All-Star game, even though it was a dismal 30th place kind of season, they hung around in every game. one nothing, 2-1, 3-2. Didn't win a lot of them because they finished dead last in the league. But with Babcock's system, they hung around. And they were in every one. They just had no talent to make a difference. And then you enter into the equation, you know, the best player in junior in Marner, the best player in the minors in Nelander, and the best player in the draft in Matthews. And you've got a pretty good equation for some success. Uh, When I watch the series, it reminds me of when I did the Pittsburgh series against Washington last year, and I thought, Washington's a better team. They're going to beat Pittsburgh. Uh, And yet it was the speed of Pittsburgh that created fits for Washington, and Pittsburgh won the series. That speed is uh, bountiful for the Maple Leafs. And so I'm watching kind of the same play roll out where the forwards are causing a lot of disruption for this Washington defense that's built more for tank warfare than kind of the f-16s that are flying by them so there is a chance that this toronto team could win the series just based on the matchup just based on what i see from these two teams but if you're a betting man i'd be taking daddy's credit card back and saying it's probably going to be a washington win
2: yeah is is this a team I, I, i've talked to a number of people who believe that this leaf team is very much on the same path that the Penguins were that the Blackhawks were. Um, you mentioned Mike Babcock. It, it, is it, is really you know is there a sense of the skies? It's almost too much, right? I mean, it's almost too much in that marketplace, right? I mean, where you've been so long, and of course, everyone knows sixty-seven, all those kinds of things. But is it too much to to really really believe in this team that it's that it is on a path not just to being a playoff team, but to being a team that can win two, three rounds, go to a final. All those things that have eluded, what, two generations of fans in Toronto.
0: Well, they have a couple of things going for them. I would say first is their philosophy, which which is the right way to build a team, which is seven times a year when you get to the podium, you make an announcement of a player, and that's how you improve your hockey club. Uh, lots of uh, grief was given to the team when they picked Mitch Marner instead of Noah Hannafin. Well, it's worked out to be a pretty good pick. So they did their homework on that player. And that, that is where you improve your team. You, you, you can make trades. They're difficult to do. That'll improve your team. You can sign players as unrestricted free agents, but that's going to cost you a lot of money and handicap you cap-wise. You tend to always overpay. But they've got the right idea that it's at the podium that you build this animal. The second thing they have going for them, you know, Mike has a, a presence about him. Uh, Al Arbor had a presence about him. Pat Quinn had a presence about him. But the big addition to the presence that Babcock has, he is the de facto GM. If he doesn't want to play you with the term he has on his deal and the number that goes along with it, he doesn't play you. And players like Frankie Corrado were put into a graveyard to rot for a couple of years. Uh, Most coaches don't have that luxury. The general manager kind of wink-wink, nudge-nudge, you better start playing this guy, I drafted him. Well, Mike can pretty much do what he wants with his type of deal. And he does, and he is really good at developing players. So as you get to the podium, you name a player, you give him to Mike, and it's up to him to develop the player. If the development process doesn't take place, that player will be traded. And that's a kind of a nice animal to have. Most coaches don't have that, that stability. Uh, they're, they're a lot more flexible. Uh, Mike doesn't have to be flexible. So I think they're doing it the right way, and I think this is a playoff team for many years.
2: Yeah, It is a, it is a rather startling uh, and, and dramatic change over the, you know, sort of a short period of time, which is very cool. I want to ask you, though, it, sort of in general, we think about the playoffs, and I, I mean, it's just no better time, right? And we've had a pretty bountiful banquet of uh, excitement in the first round. As a netminder, does it does it change playoff time? And I think of, you know, the pressure and the scrutiny. I mean, you know, a guy like Brian Elliott, and of course, the Flames are, are done in four. Uh, you look at uh, you know, Freddie Anderson, some, you know, been very, very good. Maybe some, you know, some questions about Sergei Bobrovsky and Columbus, all those things. Is it different in the playoffs because you're playing the same team every night? And does, you know, do you approach it any differently as a goaltender or what's the, what's the great challenge of being a playoff goaltender?
0: Well, I think there's a couple elements here. And the first element is just the business side of the game. And that is when they first put this cap thing together, they thought there'll be a few teams that'll spend towards the cap there'll be a few in the midpoint and there'll be a few bottom feeders and we'll find a way to have a level that you know makes the playing field somewhat level but you know not everybody's going to race towards the cap. Okay, mistake number 1. Everybody races towards the cap, Must spend as much as I <laughs> possibly can. Some don't and and that that's okay. They've got ownership that chooses to be a budget team. So as you spend more money and get better players, you you tend to see like the the difference between making the playoffs and not is one win a month. That's it. One win. One game I just decided not to show up this month, and I'm out. So I think there's a lot more parity in the game today than at any other point. You know, you don't have a one-versus-eight matchup, which is just a clear sweep. You really don't, unless the team falls flat in their face. So you need some sort of a defining moment, a defining player, to make a difference. And the most obvious one, when you have two teams equally matched, is if your goalie's better than my goalie, I don't care how many shots, chances you have, how much you outplay me. I could beat you. And I watched it in Toronto for many years. Curtis Joseph, when we played Ottawa, clearly a better team, more chances, more zone time than we ever had, and we beat them every single year because of one player. So even though that takes you back into the 90s, some things really don't change. You know, that player can make a difference. And we're seeing it in the playoffs now. You know, Bobrovsky's catching heat because Columbus has had 14 playoff games in their lustrous career, and they've given up no less than four in any game. You're not going to win in the playoffs, giving up four. Maybe once, which is what they did last game, but not often. So it's an important position, and it typically defines you know, whether you get through or you don't. And the conversation, and you voted for it uh, for the con Smythe, the goaltender's always in the conversation. I, I've not come up to it. Maybe when Philadelphia played Chicago in the finals, uh, that playoff Stanley Cup, it was first save wins. But other than that, the goaltender's in the conversation. Yeah,
2: absolutely. All right, I'm going to let you go, but I do have one question. I've been thinking about you for for quite some time, and I wanted to circle back with you, given your experience with uh, the NHLPA, and given your experience as a as a longtime player. And I was going to sort of make this joke that I'd heard that you were a you know, front runner to play for Canada at the Olympics in South Korea, given that the NHL doesn't look like it's going to go. Um, but uh, I won't. I will lead him Don't with that put my joke, name forward. I, no, I, I got some <laughs>
0: weight to lose. It's
2: okay. <laughs> well, now that I know that uh, that the bagpiping. Is really consuming your life? I just, I'll let that slide. But I, I'm just curious what you think uh, of the recent decision uh, for you know the NHL coming out and saying they're not going to go to South Korea. Um, and I wonder, a, whether you believe that's ultimately going to be true. Whether you figure at some point we will see a reversal of fortune in terms of NHL participation in South Korea next winter, uh, and what it means, you know what it means to the players and maybe to the game uh, if the NHL isn't there. Well,
0: there, there's a couple of things, and, and Gary to me, um, you know, he was looking for a dance partner, and what he wanted was uh, whether it was the IOC to, to front some of the costs and to take care of some of the things that, uh, when we shut our game down, are important to the NHL and to the players. And he didn't have a dance partner with them. Then he looked to his next and most important dance partner, which was the NHL players, the NHLPA, and he asked them to extend the CBA right to the very end, and That being the case, we'll go to the Olympics because players desperately want to go, and so does Don Fear What that would have allowed, in my mind, is it would have allowed two Olympics in Asia, which I think would be incredible. It would have enabled two World Cups, which I think are great. The first one was just okay. The second one is going to be a lot better. And two Ryder Cups, which is a new kind of format that they've talked about, but they haven't implemented. But I think Canada versus the world would be certainly something I pay to watch. So you have an international strategy now right you're not just going to this olympics and we'll discuss the next one later you're saying we're all in now he couldn't get a dance partner with the players so he looks around and his membership group are the 31 owners and he can't bring anything back to the table for them so unless somebody wants to get up and ask someone to dance and the music starts playing then they're just simply not going and from the ioc standpoint i really don't think it matters whether it's nhl players or not they look at it as sport, competition, and the world is watching, and that's why the players think it's so important to go, because the world will be watching, but they might be watching players that uh, are not the best on the planet. So I I would say you should go, uh, but I can sympathize with Gary because neither partner that he had would want to dance with him.
2: Well, I've got to tell you, you and I have had lots of conversations, and I'm not sure at any point in any of them you've ever, ever said I can sympathize with Gary. So maybe that's the, maybe that's the best time and the best point uh, to leave this, uh, this conversation. But it's always great to catch up with you, my friend, and always great to get your insight. And, uh, you know, call any time. Listen, I'm always, uh, I'm always happy to listen to some bagpipe music. Uh, so let Scotty, me
0: you're a good man. Absolutely. It was a lot of fun. And, and let the games uh, continue on because they've been entertaining in every way.
2: All right. Thanks, Gunn. Take care. Cheers. Pierre, I mentioned Max Pacioretty and, and the Canadiens' captain. Now, I want to touch on that uh, in, uh, that series, which I think has been wildly compelling, very, very tough, and not much to separate those two teams. Uh, but one final question I have for you on the Washington-Toronto series: We know it's going six. What 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 are the keys for? The Washington Capitals, I I still, in my heart of heart, not just because I picked them to win the Cup, I still think they find a way to prevail in the series. But what are the keys for you? And and maybe having watched them the last two games, what are the areas that you're most interested in as this series moves forward with Game 5 in Washington on Friday and then back to Toronto on Sunday?
4: Well, yeah, I still think they're going to win this series. I mean, Game 4 was huge for them. But it would be nice if they decided to play three periods at one point. I mean, that might be... (laughs) A change of pace for them uh like I mean and, and therein lies the difference you know you know San Jose the night before you know we're comparing the two series because they're so similar with the veterans against the kids well the San Jose Sharks didn't just win game four they decided to go for the jugular to send a message and what leaves me uneasy at times with this Washington team and I still like it to go far I'm with you I think we'll figure this out but you know, you're up 4-1, and then la-di-da, here we go again, foot off the gas. And it's like, really? Uh, you know, there are 60 minutes and three periods. Like, they went, they won 5-4, and i got to say, the score is flattering to the Leafs. I mean, I really never felt like they would tie it. But nevertheless, you, you, you put yourself in that position where you're a bounce away from the worst happening to you because you took the foot off the gas. And, and so I... You know, that was their best game of the four in this series. But again, that's maybe two-thirds of where they can be in terms of their total effort. So I'm curious if finally on Friday night in Washington if we're going to see, you know, a a complete effort. Because so far it's been a couple of great starts or the last couple of games, but then it tails off.
2: Yeah, it is interesting. And I think, I will say this, I, I think that, you know, part of that is this, you know, you're the, the, the Leafs refuse to follow the script, right? Like they, they're down four-one. All right, take a knee. All right, let's move on. They don't, they won't play that script. I, will, I will say this, and having watched the Caps very closely from afar in the first round of last year leading up to that second round series against Pittsburgh. Uh, I think they're much better now than they were a year ago. And here it's it's still 2-2. Two, two, and they're, you know, it's, it's, it's right now it's a coin toss. So I, I, I'm, I think it has been a much, much different series than I expected it would be. And I think maybe mm-hmm. it's, it's probably been a much different series than maybe the Capitals themselves have. And so maybe they've had to learn on the go about you know, the level of effort and all those things that it's going to take to beat the eight-seeded Leafs. So,
4: well, uh, and certainly I, I think an important storyline is that Brayden Holby hasn't been Brayden Holby yet. Um, yeah. I'm not saying, it's not like he's been terrible. I mean, he, 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 you know, he's been good at times. But his standard is so high because of, well, he said it, you know, and, and you know he's going to be nominated for the Vesna again. That's not the goalie we've had so far for the most part. Uh, and that's a storyline I would have certainly never predicted. I mean, part of the reasons why, why I, uh, you know, outside of the many other ones you could come up with, you know, the, the, you know, the, the lack of experience and everything else, why I couldn't see the least pull off the upset, is that even if you could convince yourself that because they have just as much firepower perhaps as the Caps, and I think they do, that maybe they, they get into some of these close games, it, it, it just, I always thought to myself, well, Brain Holby is one of the top five bullies in the world. And so that's just going to be the you know, well he's not been that in this series again. He he's also he's not been terrible either. But I'm just saying, he's been a notch below what we're used to, and and that to me has been surprising so far.
2: Yeah, no, and I think it's fair, and I think it's made the goaltending matchup with Freddie Anderson, who I thought was the, I, you know, was there was a bit of slideage. That's not even a word. I thought he slid a little bit. <laughs> uh, yeah, Slidage. My word for Freddie Anderson in Game 4. Uh, I learned right. a new word today. It, 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 yeah, You can you go ahead and use it, but you have to quote me. Um, but I, I think that um, for the most part, then, in, in this 2-2 series, that Freddie Anderson has even the playing field that I'm with you. I thought would mm-hmm. be or should have been heavily favored in, uh, towards Braden being the Caps. Uh, let's move on before I let you go and you move on with your day. And we bring, bring a, this edition of Hockey Today, the podcast, to a close. But I am interested uh, in your thoughts on the Montreal um, Rangers series. I think a lot of us imagine very, very tight seven games. Probably not surprising. I think as we're speaking now, they've each scored eight goals. Um, but a lot of pressure. On the Montreal captain, Max Pacioretty, why aren't you producing offensively? And you know that marketplace Mm -hmm. so well. Is this the kind of thing that can galvanize a team like the Montreal Canadiens? You know, Carey Price probably hasn't been tested nearly as much as as Henrik Lundqvist, but two of the finest goaltenders uh, in the world. And this series is so tight. Uh, But... When you, you – know is the pressure that be, is being brought to bear on Patriot and the Habs to respond, to play better at home, and to get more goals, is it mm-hmm. counterproductive sometimes? Or do you see them – see this kind of thing as this is where you – where the Canadians sort of rise to the challenge? Or how do you see this playing out? Because it is a fascinating series and with, you know, with Ottawa taking control in that series over Boston – um, you know, this series is so important for a team that I think will probably be a favorite to go to an East final, whoever wins this series.
4: Yeah, I think the Canadians have played a decent series, you know, but it's just this matchup is close. I mean, you know, two teams coached almost I- identical way by LAVU and Claude Julien. Very, very little room to maneuver, uh, not a lot of offensive chances. Both goalies are all world. This is playing out, I mean, I said the Canadians in six, but... I mean, I, I really felt this would go six or seven. And, you know, I, I think the Canadiens have just been a little more consistent in the last couple months of the season, and I have them winning by a hair. But I haven't seen anything to change my mind. I, I mean, even in the game they lost in game four, I think the Canadiens like Shea Weber hits the post, right, with a minute and a half left. Yes. I mean, yeah. they're they're right there. Um, you know, the one thing the Rangers did that impressed me in game four and, and ironically enough, could become a big storyline again here before the end of this series is that they crashed the net. <laughs> and uh, yes. I think we know why Should that's the that storyline. <laughs> yes, and, you know, Rick Nash almost decapitated Gary Price on that one play. But but if you look at the two goals they scored, they 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 really went to the net and stuffed it in. I think that's what the Rangers have to do because they're generating very little from the back end. Um, they're not getting that many chances in transition. Claude Julien's structure, very evident the way the Canes defend now. So they're going to have to have those plays where whether it's Rick Nash or... Uh, you know, Zuccarello or Kreider, that you sort of get the, the puck from the corner of the goal line and just try to, you know, make a beeline for the net. And it sounds rudimentary, but it's essentially what they did in game four. And so I, I'm looking forward to that storyline moving forward again because of the history between these two teams when it comes to protection of goalies.
2: All right. And now, <clears throat> I promised I was going to let you go, but I'm going to ask you one more thing. And maybe it's more a declaration for me is that I'm, I'm now, <laughs> having watched the. Bobby Ryan, magical goal, and just mm-hmm. uh, just—I—I'm I, all over the Senators now. And I, well, I think, so I think, so I
4: hate to I, I hate to, to pipe my own horn here, but uh, the last time I did the podcast was I think last Tuesday, yeah. before the playoffs started, and and I remember having this conversation. I was surprised how few people had picked Ottawa over Boston. I, I was one of the Ottawa guys, and and it's not so much because I thought it was evident. Frankly, I viewed it as a fifty-fifty series. But within the context of the 50-50 series, I I know that the advanced stats are way better for Boston, but there's other things to look at, too. I was shocked that it was kind of overwhelming in terms of the people picking Boston. Yeah,
2: I changed my pick, by the way. I just went back. Oh, yeah. Wait, yeah wait. I'm changing. I don't think
4: you're allowed to do that, by the way.
2: <laughs> but I just, hey, Craig and I went through this on the on the podcast earlier this week, and I was like, I still don't get it. But, you know, here, here's a here's tip of the hat, though, too. And I know it's not over, but, you know, with the, the Senators up 3 1, and Craig Anderson, you know, been good when he's had to be, Eric Carlson is playing out of his all home. world. Like, just, yeah. oh, my gosh, how good is he? And then. You know, Bobby Ryan, and, and, and you know, Bobby Ryan's the first to admit, it has not been an easy time for him the last couple of years. He's had the injuries. He's productivity's down. You know, he's burdened. I don't say burdened. I don't I mean people will, will be upset, but there is, in sense, a sense, a burden of his contract because he hasn't lived up to its value. He gets that. He's a smart guy. So to see him score crucial goals, make critical Make playoffs, goals, yeah. It, uh, it's just, it, you know, it's it's a good... It's a great story, and I'm all on board now. I'm, I'm fully on board the Senators' bandwagon. I, may, I don't care who they play, maybe in the next round they move on. I may just be all over them, which will ensure a sweep for either the Montreal Canadiens or the New York Rangers. So I'm
4: sure well, I'll, I'll the tell you this. I'm still obviously sticking with my pick, which is Ottawa, for that series. But if there's a series that smells like a team come back and stretch it to seven, it's this one. I mean, it's been very close between the Senators and Bruins. And, uh, again, going back to that desperation level, I mean, Boston's going to play like there's no tomorrow in the next game. And I know people kind of laugh at that, that that somehow that's something that we exaggerate. But you ask the players about it. It's a different emotion. And, uh, it, you know, again, I still think the Senators find a way to win one of the next three, but it would not surprise me if the Bruins stretch this series a bit. All
2: right. Well, we'll see how it happens. And <clears throat> as we always do at this point of the podcast. We did encourage everyone to go to iTunes. Give us a rating. Let us know what you think about all that has transpired we, all of the happenings in Buffalo that we discussed in the first round and what's going on in Toronto and headed to Washington. All those things. Go and give us a rating. Share some of your thoughts with other hockey people. It's a great place to do it. And with that, my friend, I will set you on your way and uh, look forward to catching up next week when we return with Hockey Today, the podcast. See you later, my friend.
4: All right, buddy.
0: We'd like to thank you for listening to today's show. For more great podcasts, check out the Pod Center page at espnradio.com.